Chapter 2 The Ordeal of Richard Feverell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Ordeal of Richard Feverell by George Meredith. Chapter 2 October shone royally on Richard's fourteenth birthday. The brown beechwoods and golden birches glowed to a brilliant sun. Banks of moveless cloud hung about the horizon, mounded to the west, where slept the wind. Promise of a great day for Raynham, as it proved to be, though not in the manner marked out. Already archery booths and cricketing tents were rising on the lower grounds towards the river, whither the lads of Bursley and Lowburn, in boats and in carts, shouting for a day of ale and honour, jogged merrily to match themselves anew, and pluck at the lining laurel from each other's brows, line manly Britons. The whole park was beginning to be astir and resound with holiday cries. Sir Austin Feverell, a thorough good Tory, was no game preserver, and could be popular whenever he chose, which Sir Males Papworth, on the other side of the river, a fast-handed Whig and terror to poachers, never could be. Half the village of Lowburn was seen trooping through the avenues of the park. Fiddlers and gypsies clamoured at the gates for admission. White smocks and slate, surmounted by hats of serious brim, and now and then a scarlet cloak, smacking of the old country, dotted the grassy sweeps to the levels. And all the time the star of these festivities was receding further and further, and eclipsing himself with his reluctant serf Ripton, who kept asking what they were to do and where they were going, and how late it was in the day and suggesting that the lads of Lowburn would be calling out for them, and Sir Austin requiring their presence, without getting any attention paid to his misery or remonstrances. For Richard had been requested by his father to submit to medical examination like a boor enlisting for a soldier, and he was in great wrath. He was flying as though he would have flown from the shameful thought of what had been asked of him. By and by he communicated his sentiments to Ripton, who said they were those of a girl, an offensive remark, remembering which Richard, after they had borrowed a couple of guns at the bailiff's farm, and Ripton had fired badly, called his friend a fool. Feeling that circumstances were making him look wonderfully like one, Ripton lifted his head and retorted defiantly, "'I'm not!' This angry contradiction, so very uncalled for, annoyed Richard, who was still smarting at the loss of the birds, owing to Ripton's bad shot, and was really the injured party. He therefore bestowed the abusive epithet on Ripton anew, and with increase of emphasis. "'You shan't call me so, then, whether I am or not,' says Ripton, and sucks his lips." This was becoming personal. Richard sent up his brows and stared at his defier an instant. He then informed him that he certainly should call him so, and would not object to call him so twenty times. "'Do it and see,' returns Ripton, rocking on his feet and breathing quick. 
With a gravity of which only boys and other barbarians are capable, Richard went through the entire number, stressing the epithet to increase the defiance and avoid monotony, as he progressed, while Ripton bobbed his head every time in assent, as it were, to his comrade's accuracy and as a record for his profound humiliation. The dog they had with them gazed at the extraordinary performance with interrogating wags of the tail. Twenty times, duly and deliberately, Richard repeated the obnoxious word. At the twentieth solemn iteration of Ripton's capital shortcoming, Ripton delivered a smart backhander on Richard's mouth and squared precipitately, perhaps sorry when the deed was done, for he was a kind-hearted lad, and as Richard simply bowed in acknowledgment of the blow he thought he had gone too far. He did not know the young gentleman he was dealing with. Richard was extremely cool. "'Shall we fight here?' he said." "'Anywhere you like,' replied Ripton. "'A little more into the wood, I think, we may be interrupted.' And Richard led the way with a courteous reserve that somewhat chilled Ripton's ardor for the contest. On the skirts of the wood, Richard threw off his jacket and waistcoat, and, quite collected, waited for Ripton to do the same. The latter boy was flushed and restless, older and broader, but not so tight-limbed and well-set.' The gods, sole witnesses of their battle, betted dead against him. Richard had mounted the white cockade of the Feverals, and there was a look in him that asked for tough work to extinguish. His brows, slightly lined upward at the temples, converging to a knot about the well-set straight nose, his full gray eyes, open nostrils, and planted feet, and a gentlemanly air of calm and alertness, formed a spirited picture of a young combatant. As for Ripton, he was all abroad and fought in schoolboy style. That is, he rushed at the foe, head foremost, and struck like a windmill. He was a lumpy boy. When he did hit, he made himself felt, but he was at the mercy of science. To see him come dashing in, blinking and puffing and whirling his arms abroad, while the felling blow went straight between them, you perceived that he was fighting a fight of desperation and knew it. For the dreaded alternative glared him in the face that, if he yielded, he must look like what he had been twenty times calumniously called, and he would die rather than yield, and swing his windmill till he dropped. Poor boy! He dropped frequently. The gallant fellow fought for appearances, and down he went. The gods favor one of two parties. Prince Turnus was a noble youth, but he had not Pallas at his elbow. Ripton was a capital boy. He had no science. He could not prove he was not a fool. When one comes to think of it, Ripton did choose the only possible way, and we should all of us have considerable difficulty in proving the negative by any other. Ripton came on the unerring fist again and again, and if it was true, as he said in short colloquial gasps, that he required as much beating as an egg to be beaten thoroughly, a fortunate interruption alone saved our friend from resembling that substance. The boys heard summoning voices and beheld Mr. Morton of Poor Hall and Austin Wentworth stepping towards them. 
A truce was sounded, jackets were caught up, guns shouldered, and off they trotted in concert through the depths of the wood, not stopping till that and half a dozen fields and a large plantation were well behind them. When they halted to take breath, there was a mutual study of faces. Ripton's was much discolored and looked fiercer with its natural war-paint than the boy felt. Nevertheless, he squared up dauntlessly on the new ground, and Richard, whose wrath was appeased, could not refrain from asking him whether he had not really had enough. "'Never!' shouts the noble enemy." "'Well, look here,' said Richard, appealing to common sense. "'I'm tired of knocking you down. "'I'll say you're not a fool if you'll give me your hand.' Ripton demurred an instant to consult with Honor, who bade him catch at his chance. He held out his hand. "'There!' And the boys grasped hands and were fast friends. Ripton had gained his point, and Richard decidedly had the best of it. So they were on equal ground.' Both could claim a victory, which was all the better for their friendship. Ripton washed his face and comforted his nose at a brook, and was now ready to follow his friend wherever he chose to lead. They continued to beat about for birds. The birds on the Raym estates were found singularly cunning, and repeatedly eluded the aim of these prime shots, so they pushed their expedition into the lands of their neighbors, in search of a stupider race, happily oblivious of the laws and conditions of trespass. Unconscious, too, that they were poaching on the demets of the notorious farmer Blaze, the free-trade farmer under the shield of the Papworths, no worshipper of the griffin between two wheat-sheaves, destined to be much allied with Richard's fortunes from beginning to end. Farmer Blaze hated poachers, and especially young chaps poaching, who did it mostly from impudence. He heard the audacious shots popping right and left, and going forth to have a glimpse at the intruders, and, observing their size, swore he would teach my gentlemen a thing, lords or no lords. Richard had brought down a beautiful cock-pheasant, and was exulting over it when the farmer's portentous figure burst upon them, cracking an avenging horsewhip. His salute was ironical. "'Having good sport, gentlemen, are ye?' "'Just bagged a splendid bird,' Radiant Richard informed him. "'Oh!' Farmer Blaze gave an admonitory flick of the whip. "'Just let me clap eye on it, then.' "'Say, please,' interposed Ripton, who was not blind to doubtful aspects. Farmer Blaze threw up his chin and grinned grimly. "'Please to you, sir. Why, my chap, it looks as if ye didn't much mind what come to your nose, I reckon.' "'You looks an old poacher, you do. Tell ye what tis.' He changed his banter to business. "'That bird's mine. Now you jest hand him over and shear off, you damn young scoundrels. I know ye.' And he became exceedingly opprobrious and muttered contempt of the name of Feverel. Richard opened his eyes. "'If you wants to be horsewhipped, you'll stay where you are,' continued the farmer. "'Giles Blaze never stands nonsense.' "'Then we'll stay,' quoth Richard. "'Good, so be it. If you'll have it, have it, my men.' As a preparatory measure, Farmer Blaze seized a wing of the bird on which both boys flung themselves desperately and secured it minus the pinion. "'That's your game,' cried the farmer. "'Here's a taste of horsewhip for ye. I never stands nonsense. 
and switch went the mighty whip, well swayed. The boys tried to close with him. He kept his distance and lashed without mercy. Black blood was made by Farmer Blaze that day. The boys wriggled in spite of themselves. It was like a relentless serpent coiling and biting and stinging their young veins to madness. Probably they felt the disgrace of the contortions they were made to go through more than the pain, but the pain was fierce, for the farmer laid about from a practiced arm, and did not consider that he had done enough till he was well breathed and his ruddy jowl inflamed. He paused to receive the remainder of the cock pheasant in his face. "'Take your beastly bird!' cried Richard." "'Money, my lads, and interest!' roared the farmer, lashing out again. Shameful as it was to retreat, there was but that course open to them. They decided to surrender the field. "'Look, you big brute!' Richard shook his gun, hoarse with passion. "'I'd have shot you if I'd been loaded. "'Mind, if I come across you when I'm loaded, you coward, I'll fire!' The un-English nature of this threat exasperated Farmer Blaze, and he pressed the pursuit in time to bestow a few farewell stripes as they were escaping tight-breached into neutral territory. At the hedge they parlayed a minute, the farmer to inquire if they had had a mortal good tanning and were satisfied, for when they wanted a further installment of the same they were to come for it to Belthorpe Farm, and there it was in pickle the boys meantime exploding in menaces and threats of vengeance on which the farmer contemptuously turned his back. Ripton had already stocked an armful of flints for the enjoyment of a little skirmishing. Richard, however, knocked them all out, saying, No, gentlemen, don't fling stones. Leave that to the blackguards. Just one shy at him, pleaded Ripton, with his eye on Farmer Blaze's broad mark, and his whole mind drunken with a sudden revelation of the advantages of light troops in opposition to heavies. No, said Richard imperatively, no stones, and marched briskly away. Ripton followed with a sigh. His leader's magnanimity was wholly beyond him. A good spanking mark at the farmer would have relieved Master Ripton. It would have done nothing to console Richard Feverel for the ignominy he had been compelled to submit to. Ripton was familiar with the rod, a monster much despoiled of his terrors by intimacy. Birch fever was passed with this boy. The horrible sense of shame, self-loathing, universal hatred, impotent vengeance, as if the spirit were steeped in abysmal blackness, which comes upon a courageous and sensitive youth, condemned for the first time to taste this piece of fleshly bitterness, and suffer what he feels is a defilement, Ripton had weathered and forgotten. He was seasoned wood, and took the world pretty wisely, not reckless of castigation, as some boys become, nor oversensitive as to dishonor, as his friend and comrade beside him was. Richard's blood was poisoned. He had the fever on him severely. He would not allow stone flinging, because it was a habit of his to discountenance it. Mere gentlemanly considerations has scarce shielded Farmer Blaze, and certain very ungentlemanly schemes were coming to ghastly heads in the tumult of his brain, rejected solely from their glaring impracticability even to his young intelligence. A sweeping and consummate vengeance for the indignity alone should satisfy him.
Something tremendous must be done, and done without delay. At one moment he thought of killing all the farmer's cattle, next of killing him, challenging him to single combat with the arms, and according to the fashion of gentlemen. But the farmer was a coward he would refuse. Then he, Richard Feverel, would stand by the farmer's bedside and rouse him, rouse him to fight with powder and ball in his own chamber, in the cowardly midnight, where he might tremble, but dare not refuse. "'Lord!' cried simple Ripton, while these hopeful plots were raging in his comrade's brain, now sparkling for immediate execution, and anon lapsing disdainfully dark in their chances of fulfilment. "'How I wish you'd have let me notch him, Ricky! I'm a safe shot. I never miss. I should feel quite jolly if I'd spanked him once. We should have had the beat of him at that game. I say!' and a sharp thought drew Ripton's ideas nearer home. I wonder whether my nose is as bad as he says. Where can I see myself? To these exclamations Richard was deaf, and he trudged steadily forward facing but one object. After tearing through innumerable hedges, leaping fences, jumping dykes, penetrating brambly copses, and getting dirty, ragged, and tired, Ripton awoke from his dream of Farmer Blaze and a blue nose to the vivid consciousness of hunger, and this grew with the rapidity of light upon him, till in the course of another minute he was enduring the extremes of famine, and ventured to question his leader whether he was being conducted Raynham was out of sight. They were a long way down the valley, miles from Lowburn, in a country of sour pools, yellow brooks, rank pasturage, desolate heath. Solitary cows were seen, the smoke of a mud cottage, a cart piled with peat, a donkey grazing at leisure, oblivious of an unkind world, geese by a horse-pond, gabbling as in the first loneliness of creation, uncooked things that a famishing boy cannot possibly care for, and must despise. Ripton was in despair. "'Where are you going to?' he inquired with a voice of the last time of asking, and halted resolutely. Richard now broke his silence to a reply. "'Anywhere. Anywhere.' Ripton took up the moody word. "'But ain't you awfully hungry?' he gasped vehemently, in a way that showed the total emptiness of his stomach. "'No,' was Richard's brief response. "'Not hungry!' Ripton's amazement lent him increased vehemence. "'Why, you haven't had anything to eat since breakfast. Not hungry. I declare I'm starving. I feel such a gnawing I could eat dry bread and cheese.' Richard sneered, not for reasons that would have actuated a similar demonstration of the philosopher. "'Come,' cried Ripton, "'at all events, tell us where you're going to stop.' Richard faced about to make a querulous retort. The injured and hapless visage that met his eye disarmed him. The lad's nose, though not exactly of the dreaded hue, was really becoming discolored. To upbraid him would be cruel.' Richard lifted his head, surveyed the position, and exclaiming, Here! dropped down on a withered bank, leaving Ripton to contemplate him as a puzzle, whose every new move was a worse perplexity. End of chapter 2